they're bad, they're boys, and occasionally they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Hey! How you doing, Jade Rainsford? I'm all right, David Hellard. How is your running? Uh, we starting with that. <laughs> oh, I thought you'd might have gone from up from 800 meters to possibly a kilometer or something. Is it? Well, is it? Is it? Is it not good news? I mean, for one, I'm having issues with. Um, with my GPS and Strava not agreeing that the distance is as long as I'd like it to be, which means that um, sadly I'm not as quick as I'd want to be. It's weird. I've, so when you come back from injury, you, you're caught in this this strange place where you almost want to be as fast as you were, but then you also want to make huge improvements of training, and you can't have one without the other. And um, but now I've seen the physio again. Well, no, I've spoken to the physio again, and I'm not allowed to do that. Again, <laughs> so I'm now the the tiny, tiny amount of running that you that was you were clinging onto that was going to give you the tiniest amount of joy has been yeah. torn from your grasp. Oh, Matt, it's just so. I, it's strange because now that I, I don't know if this is everywhere, but because of Corona. It's phone calls that you have with the physios now. Yes, yeah, which right. seems, yeah, which they always I, want I you could... to send a photo. I don't know how that works with your thing. <laughs> well, with my thing, it's always you always describe it anyway, and then every now and then you point to a bit. But it's just it it, it doesn't. Yeah, it it's physio, just really physio, it's a... physio is not a do it by phone or do it over Skype thing. Oh, it really isn't, and especially as I think he could, I could. I could tell the tone in his in his voice, and he could tell the tone in my voice. And actually, if we were face to face, we'd probably be fighting a little bit more. Yeah, <laughs> I'm too injured, too injured. We'd probably be smiling at each other more, or at least trying to pretend that I'm not just thoroughly disappointed and unapproving in in everything about about said person um so and, and just in case anyone's listening because i know i have th- i've had three layers of physios so i don't think i've ever mentioned this one he's the i won't even say his role um it's, but it was almost he came onto it on the phone call because i've been chasing for two weeks to try and have a physio appointment following up all these scans that essentially said exactly what the issue was before is still the issue and there's nothing worse and there's nothing better and it's exactly how it was um and uh, he, he almost came onto it as this kind of apologetic schoolboy, knowing he was in trouble because I'd threatened to go to, like, like a bully, apologising to someone who's bullied because I'd threatened to go to the the top person and say, Hancock. "You're going to go yeah, to exactly. Hancock about this." <laughs> exactly, exactly. I threatened to get. I, well, I basically said, "Look, I've got a follow up with the top guy in the whole of the NHS very soon." I don't want him to. I don't want to have to tell him that literally nothing has happened since he's taken time to do all these things. Um, so it's just this weird, really weird conversation where everything I said was pretty much um, kind of ignored, and then whatever. 
<laughs> but, and, and to a certain extent, I've reached the stage of ignoring what they've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, you've, ter- you've turned into someone's parents. I'm going to well, go to the doctors, and I'm not going to listen to a thing that they say, uh, and then I'm going to just come to my own conclusions and be angry about the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, but, but since, since I've had this call, I've, I've, since I had the call with him, I, I decided I'm going to do exactly what he says, and that way... When nothing happens, I can go that nothing's happened. Now, at least then I can feel that I'm doing everything I can. And it was just so strange because he, I, I, t- I told him I was doing my eight, six, seven, eight hundred meter sprint down the block, and he's like, "What speed?" And I was like, "As fast as I can every single day." And he, he kind of almost refused to believe that I could do that given the injury. Um, and then for the rest of it's it's quite strange. Basically, my injury, I never really feel anything that bad at the time because it's very much a slow build-up. And so if I do an, an exercise that's not right or if I do too much, then it will start to ache more progressively. But at no point can I go, that is a thing that's wrong or, oh, this is actually okay for me to do because it takes so long for it to build up. And yeah. so throughout the whole of the assessment, he kept on being, well, you know, when you get a pain like this and like, I don't get pains like that. Okay, but have you ever had to stop running because it hurts so much? Yes, I have. But that was after nine months of you doing nothing and I was still running very many. And it was the, the slow build up of the pain was so much that eventually it got to the point that I couldn't do it. Not that I, and so all of his, even though I've said all these things, it seems to be everything he says after that doesn't ignores the fact i've said all of this and it's well why don't you go on a cross trainer and maybe do like three minutes on a cross trainer and if it hurts too much then stop I'm like okay it won't hurt too much and i'm not going to go on a cross trainer for three minutes i'd rather wait until i'm ready to run and then just start running a lesser fitness than the three minutes of cross training has, has bought me um and it's just like it i like it when it gets into guesswork how about you balance on one leg and throw a ball in the air <laughs> uh, and see what happens, and maybe that'll do so. It's just like what you're just you're just making stuff up now. Like uh, you've run out of ideas. I, f- I feel that way from the beginning, and so his his advice has been carry on doing what you're doing at the gym, which I was doing anyway, and build up on a cross trainer. And I I don't know. Do, do you ever feel? I feel like almost like the supermodel like i don't get out of bed for less than thousand meters <laughs> <laughs> it's, i feel like that i mean i'm, I'm, I'm obviously being <laughs> i will only leave the house for <laughs> up to a thousand meters <laughs> oh. yeah so no, I've been it, that's it, that is really hard to go, to motivate yourself to go to the gym it'll take longer to get to, it'll take longer getting changed for the gym than doing the actual exercise that you're doing in the gym. Yeah, and the gym is further away than the exercise <laughs> you're asking me to go to the gym to do. And <laughs> also, also, you're that person that people are sitting around, you know, like, you know, they're doing their exercise and they see you walk in, cheery, three minutes on the thing, and then walking straight out again, going, <laughs> they're, like, it. <laughs> they're like, man, he, I can't believe he couldn't manage four minutes at, at that, at that, <laughs> he at that pace. He couldn't manage three minutes, one second. That is embarrassing. <laughs> Oh, the thing that I am allowed to do that, that he's, he's, he told me is because I, I, I was complaining. He was like, why are you doing this running uh, like so intently? And he said, like, well, I 
don't want to, you know, I, I want to have some kind of athleticism in my life in any way. And I'd rather have a very high intensity that's not that, that damaging than you know, do something I know is really bad. So I'm allowed to go on, on a bike for 40 seconds at a time. So uh, I do that and I'm absolutely this ruined by it. Cause like, the shittiest, yeah. shortest triathlon you're going to do. 40 <laughs> seconds on a bike. 30, what's it called? Three minutes on a bike. Put your toe trainer. in the pool. Yeah, that's it. You, oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. Amazing. So how, how is your running there? How's the... Have you are you have you no longer are you, have you are you out of gout? I'm out of gout. It it feels are you? weird. If if what? You are. You're out of gout. Out of gout. Yeah. It's but it's amazing. Like the amount of people I've talked to this about who have had gout, it is insane. And this is people from like old to like eighteen years old. Are they are they all around the same medieval feast table? <laughs> no, they're all completely different. It's just. <laughs> It's utterly insane, but uh, I've run pretty much every day for the last two weeks now, so I am feeling pretty damn good about things. Put the Iron Man back on. If the Iron Man, Man the Iron thing, Man ever. will be back on if it's ever ever done again. But yeah, I, I'm I'm all right now. I still I still need to go for a blood test to to make sure it was you know definitely gout. Um, but I can't imagine. The thing is, I, it's weird. Like when you have you know like when you have like plantar fasciitis, and every time that you run. You always there's that moment where it kind of feels like it's going to come back or it's just the memory of it. Something happens, you know, and it, the same thing with the gout thing. Like I feel as though something's going on in my foot that is that, that's an issue. Never when I'm running, always when I've stopped running. Um, so I don't know. It's weird. But yeah, so I've been I've been running. So I've been it's been good actually getting out. And the weather's got better, actually. It got really awful. It got better, better again. So it's been quite nice. Oh, mate. Well, at least finally one of us is running, which is good yes, news. Yes, yes. Well, that's really funny because I think it's good that it was running because um, recently they had the Thames Path 100 um, where uh, some amazing performances from Do-Badders. Like, Ali, did you go under 22 hours? Um, it was something like that, yeah. It was yeah, like, yeah. incredible. But, you know, loads of Do-Badders. Some people do the face. G-Law, 16th. Saw that, Yeah. We were cheering him on from Italy. Just amazing. I mean, is uh, do, do you think that is the pinnacle of him being rehabilitated? I mean, I, I've heard this. The only reason he did it was to seek forgiveness. So <laughs> what, well, it needs to be a regular. He regularly needs to seek forgiveness, so that's got nothing to do with. I mean, I feel sorry for the for the nuns that were having to keep up with him, ringing ringing the bells, just screaming shame with every step. But um, it, it fueled him on. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's getting a, he's getting a bit of a um, sort of a Sean Conway vibe going on. He's <laughs> maximising his gingerness, and I don't know whether it's all it's all part of a, a plot to become some kind of ultra influencer or something like that. But he's definitely stepped up. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and it's, it's so good to see that a lot of people, because Matt, Matt Simpson... A lot of people abandoned in cycling, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Matt, Matt Simpson finished um, finished his first 100 miler, and there were, I think, Neil as well. But I, I was wondering whether, if it's just because there's nothing else for us to watch, that it seems like more people are getting into the longer distances, or whether this is, you know, whether the fact that there are so few other races that people are now thinking, yeah, let's let's get on board. Let's do some ultras. 
because Ryan Hall's in the States has run his first ultra as well. Oh, really? And and he's been, you know, one of the best marathon runners for, for years yeah, over there, I, I think. that's it. Ultras, ultras are easy things to put. All of a sudden, the um, problems with an ultra are the things that make it runnable in the current situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know. But yeah. I, I just, I, I, I do, it's really interesting how kind of grasping on for some kind of running news or race or something that's interesting to... to I mean, if, we, if we're talking about people grasping for relevance, uh, what, about, <laughs> what about the one-hour record that people have, have been breaking? So two have gone in the last month. They went together at the... Um, so we had um, Mo Farah, the one-hour record. Maybe just the European one. I'm trying to remember now. Oh, no, he beat the... He beat the overall one by 45 meters. I mean, I I think the one-hour record is the most stupid race because what's the one-hour record? I thought he broke the two-two-mile record. Did he do that? At the I mean, he's he. That's the type of thing he'll he'll have to do now to try and break records because he's he needs that to get in the in the press. But the, the crazy thing is that so he ran 21.3. Um, at three kilometers and you think it's just so close to the half marathon but like, what is the point <laughs> it's like having i understand you have an 800 meters and you have a, a 15 and a 1500 meters and you have a 5k and a 10k but let's, let's it's like saying let's go for the the 5007 meter record because and as the women's as well it's they're both so close do the half marathon times and half marathons, marathon distances. I realise it's a nice concept. That, and, and actually, there's a big thing in club running of trying to get um, beat 10 miles for 60 minutes. Okay. Because those, those are round numbers. Yeah. But you just think, oh, I mean, come on, Mo. And what I loved about it, and because you know that Mo and Haile Selassie, uh, Gab, Gabby Haile Selassie, have had a bit of a spat. Yeah that culminated in a run-in with was there a fisticuffs did someone have their, their watch stolen so mo and i'm trying to remember where i read this the exact quote mo was asked to comment about gabri Celasti, and he said something along the lines of he does a lot he's done a lot of running as his way, like that was instead of saying, like, what do you think of Haile Selassie? He's 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 raced a lot. He's, he says something along those lines because he can't even say, he can't bring himself to say anything complimentary about Haile Selassie. So I think that should be our approach from now on. <laughs> That's <laughs> from, if anyone else is about, he does a lot of talking. <laughs> <laughs> Other podcasts, they've done a lot of episodes. Yeah, what do you think about? <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what? I do actually think that that is so, how someone described us. I think that is exactly how a rival described us. So <laughs> they, they put out a lot of episodes. About, they have done a lot of episodes. <laughs> that is. Yes, we have. Hmm. Yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's weird, isn't it? Again, again, you know, lots of records being broken. Lots of records being broken inexplicably. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's the thing. I mean, I. Mo Farah, do we care anymore? Partly because of Evan Hill. <laughs> but that's not the biggest record. That's not the biggest record. We're, we're, I, I've, there's a bigger record that's been broken that's probably the most important record. It's the one that 
everyone cared about, then they didn't care about, then they actively tried not to give a shit about, and now they're interested again. Dick Cliff Richards' Vic, Christmas number ones. Vic Izzy Owens smashed the monarch's way FKT. <laughs> Vic Owens, what a legend! No way. <laughs> Absolutely. How much by? Answering, answering the question, what happens if someone actually runs the monarch's way? <laughs> <laughs> but because. It, did she because my understanding is um so if you don't know the the monarchs way um do batters then do not waste any time <laughs> this is not, yeah this is just listen to what we're saying now and that is all you'll ever That's what you need to know but we have it's um 600 it's between 615 or 650 miles um i think when um so lee stewart evans uh uh original do batter he um, went for went for the FKT. In some ways, he discovered the monarch's way. Mainly, mainly, mainly to spite someone, which is the best way, to, best reason for doing a six hundred and fifteen mile run and using sixteen days of your life to, <laughs> to do it twice. Um, but yeah, so he he basically set the FKT, and, and really was the first person to um, actually do the route in full and find out what, what the actual distance was because and, and everything the, and, and so, mention the history behind it as well, just in oh, case, because yeah, that's so, quite relevant. Um, yeah. So the when Charles um, was escaping um, for his life from the um, uh, from Cromwell, uh, of course he hid in the oak tree, and then he had to escape to Shoreham Harbour to escape to France. And so this is the route that that he took. Um, I, and I think we're fair to say that it is not a well-known route. It is not kept up in any way. And before, actually, before. Um, uh, Lee did it. They were trying to operate that whole, you know, that the Monastery Association was trying to operate the whole thing on, a, on, on like a couple of hundred pound a year, which is why there were like no signposts. And, yeah, and, and farmers have been actively trying to um, put up the odd um, obstacle so that yeah. they can then just claim yeah. that it doesn't, you know, that people won't use it anymore and they can then just use the land as well. So there are places where you just meet rows of hedges or walls and it, it does come to a dead end. Yeah, and it's just, yeah, there's, there's like sections of it that are just insane. Of course, Lee did it when it was, the weather was awful and stuff. But the really interesting thing about this is that, that, that uh, Vic's done this um, and, uh, I mean, she's pretty much used um, the GPS, that um, the GPS file that, that, that Lee, which is the definitive GPS file now for, for it, um, but but the really, I thought the really really good thing about it was that lots of do badders went to went to see her. There was you know, lots of support for it as well. I didn't know it was even happening. I don't know why. Like, I I'm like, why did Lee keep so quiet about this one? <laughs> legitimate chance to talk about how he got the FKT again. But um, the really good thing was that they they've taken photos of the signage and stuff like that. And a lot of that signage wasn't there before because it was specifically paid for by the money that do badders gave to Lee um, when he did it. And I think it was about oh, four that's great. Worth, of, worth of signage and, and things like that. And she's raised another like £1,800, I think, as well, which again is going to the Monarchs Way Association. So I, I just absolutely love, I mean, the FKC is amazing, but I absolutely love this whole idea of people doing these really long distances on these mm. trails and then putting that money straight back into the trail again so that other people can do it. Yeah, that's great, actually, because especially 
there are some trails where it's nice to to keep them um, to keep them traversable. But actually, something like the Monarchs Way, it's so far removed from what in the UK we deem as a a normal trail. It's 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 fairly unknown, very forgotten about. But they'll get to a point where they'll have enough money and also enough awareness and and a lot a lot of the a lot of the work is to do with local councils and you need that awareness and that that footprint of public support that they might be able to finally create a route that doesn't have any obstacles in and you know yeah. request that these walls and, and these obstacles are brought down and have the the power and that would it that would be great wouldn't it as soon as that happens we can then get um john kelly and damo hall to go head to head on it and just because <laughs> <laughs> as soon as it see, at the moment it just seems too impossibly ridiculously hard to actually do it correctly so that you can claim it because you're going to go wrong at some point well yeah that's the thing i think yeah lee and kieran um had basically given a load of information a load of help she acknowledges all of that in in the uh, in, in the write-ups and stuff as well I think it's weird how the FKTs work because there's different things because Lee did it kind of unsupported, mm. uh, where whereas Vic seems to have done it sensibly um, with a with like a van and stuff like that. And again, it just it goes to think actually that you know the difference between a man doing it, uh, if you can call Lee that, and a woman doing it in terms of the safety issue as well, which you just don't which again from a male perspective don't think about. You know that there are yeah. you, know, it, you you need that. Um, but I mean, I think there are very few sexual assaults on hobbits. We know that. And so, <laughs> well, the, the thing about him, he is a, he is a bit of a sex dwarf himself. So he, you know, if he he, he is predatory, therefore, that's in, the in fact, I, I heard there were many assaults on the route, but none of them were inflicted on him. True, true. Yeah, that, that that's really well. This this was part of the reason why. Following the the Laz interview and, and when we were chatting to Laz um, when he came over last, um, the reason why I didn't didn't end up putting on a backyard because the advice I was given that it's too hard to patrol a place, it's, it's it's too hard to find a place that you can get a four mile loop that is safe to claim as a race yeah. all the way through the night and to actually police that. So, which is which is a real shame, and, but it, I, you have to, as soon as you're race organised, you have to take those into considerations. But yeah, same with an FKT, you're, you're it's so publicly known where you are at any time, you've got a tracker. Yeah. And I, maybe that's why, one of the reasons why Vic decided to be supported, because it gives you that extra, that knowledge that someone's nearby and yeah. someone is going to be there and yeah. Yeah, it makes you it makes you wonder how anyone could legitimately claim to have a race on there, and there's no way that you'd be able to sort of cover a group of people at different. You know, you, I don't know. Um, but what an amazing what an amazing thing to do! What an amazing yeah, thing fair to play, do. Dick. Uh, so yeah, massive congratulations for that, and congratulations on the money raise, and congratulations to all the do badders who went along and supported as well. That's uh, that's incredible. Um, now, talk, but oh, go on. I was no, no, say, you talk, go ahead. No, talk, you talk, go talk, ahead. Talking about unsafe races, park oh, yes. races back. Hey, back oh, in October. I mean, the, 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 announced the day before 
<laughs> Hancock said only six people are allowed to meet together, but I don't think it's affected by it. So, oh, because oh, I I've been away, so I've not really had been in touch with what's going on. So, will it still go ahead with produced numbers and? It was, well, I don't know. It's really interesting because people are having discussions about it all uh, on Twitter and things like that. And some people saying that they've you know, given up being race directors and stuff because of the amount of stress or hassle and not being able to find volunteers and, and things like that. I don't know whether that's a general thing. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people sort of questioning how, how that can happen. But um, events aren't covered by the six people together rule, which is a weird one, um, admittedly. Um so does that mean I can just say that every house party is an event? Yeah, it's a weird one. I don't, I don't, I don't quite know. I don't think anyone's really sure, but I know that I certainly saw on um, on Twitter when people were were looking at it. They, you know, people were saying, "Oh, what? How does this?" Yeah, they announced it one day, and then the next day they had this this new kind of like lockdown, not lockdown rules, um, uh, meeting rules again. And people saying, "Well, surely that completely negates it." And a lot of the people in part one were coming back and saying. Uh, actually, no, it doesn't because it doesn't include um, sort of sporting events. I don't know whether that means spectator sporting events or, or but I don't, I don't think it sounds like it doesn't mean participatory sporting events. But again, mm. I don't know. I, it's really difficult to follow what the rules are on everything at the moment um, because that's difficult because we have literally just organised a, a do better Brighton Monopoly run um, <laughs> the, pretty much on the same on the same day. Um, and yeah, we're thinking, oh no, it, is that an event? It, I, th- I, th- I mean, how do you get how do you get classed as an event? So there's a Brighton Monopoly board. There's a Monopoly board for everything, David. But, but it's, are the chances cards? Are they? You know, you've been picked up for smoking weeds too much. Um, find fifty dollars, or illicit, you've illicitly juggling on the beach, or. You've opened up a yeah a naked vegan cafe, earned fifty pounds. I mean, do they change those to suit the city? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they're like. There's a millennial <laughs> monopoly as well, where they can't buy any property. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> they can't know. Oh god, they're just gonna rent off their parents and each like, one. And all the like the cards are things like, Oh, buy some avocado you buy some avocado toast, you now can't afford a deposit, lose fifty dollars and stuff like that. It's hilarious. Has, has that been done in conjunction with the official monopoly or is that Yeah, yeah. it's a monopoly for everything it's incredible. We've got like five di- no matter what your interest is, you can get a monopoly on it. We've got a horses and ponies monopoly and a sonic monopoly as well. Like it doesn't matter. We could. There's probably a do better monopoly we could we could work out as well. But they'll li- they'll license anything. Wow. Um. Well, there's something to consider, I guess. And if someone wants to create that, we'll give you the license. We'll give you. <laughs> yeah. 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 We have very strict licensing rules, as most of the do badders you can't get hold of merch. No. <laughs> now, um, on to. Have you seen about the Iranian wrestler? Yeah, we've only got a few few days left to try and exert pressure and, and sign the petition. But basically, there currently is a a wrestler called Navid Afkari in Iran who is being sentenced to death um, because of his political statements. And so the the government are trying to make a 
well, probably they're going to make a martyr out of him, but they're they're trying to trying to uh, come down on him, come down on him hard as a um, as a figurehead. So basically, all Navid had done, he he was one of thousands of people who took part in a kind of spontaneous demonstration that was against economic hardship, political oppression in Iran. So he happened to be one of them in that big crowd, and because he's famous in Iran, he's going to be executed for it. And I, I just think it's so insane, and it's, it seems like one of those times that all of the communities of sport need to come together and just pressurise our government, because that's it, just so bad if that actually happens. Well, they're trying to make an example out of him because he's famous. Yeah, absolutely. He was. It's it's it's, it's one of the the dark sides, I guess, of fame that he was then seen as people, someone who who they look up to. It'd, it'd be the equivalent of David Beckham suddenly started speaking. Although David Beckham's a bit old now. Um, say Harry Kane was leading the charge in some some um, demonstrations, and they chose to pick him out and say, right, you're the one we're going to punish. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm going to post uh, as soon as we're off this call it in the group um, for people to sign the petition. But I mean that is that is something where the uh, the IOC, I, th- I feel all of the sporting bodies should be absolutely yeah. curious about this. Yeah. Banny. I mean, if you're if you're executing um, athletes. Yeah, absolutely, and absolutely. I don't, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because they, they, they turned it political. They, I mean, it, it, it is political, but the the fact that he's being pointed out and he's the person who, that this is happening to is is because he's a sports person. Yeah. And, and so um, I was first alerted to this. So Rob um, Rob Kohler, who came on, who was used to be the the deputy head of WADA, who set up a a um, a, a movement to try yeah. and protect athletes they've been trying to pressure as much as possible but it, I mean, it's interesting that you've not heard of this because it, it clearly isn't working it's clearly not getting out there that and this what's is the what's the timeline then for when he is supposedly going to be executed yeah it, it's fairly imminently that he's going to be he's he's scheduled but i you know knowing iran it could be that this is this is their way of of, of getting a bit of political power, um, yeah. so I imagine this this will go on if we we all get behind the petition and we start um, actually adding pressure to it. And he'll he'll no doubt become a pawn um, in international politics. It, th- there's also claims you know it was forced from him, a confession and and various. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, so sad times. So now before we get onto our guest. Um, on to something that I think you'd be interested in to, to test yourself against. Okay. How fast do you think the strongest, former strongest man in the world can run a mile and a half? They were always, whenever I used to watch Strongest Man, like every time they had to do a running, there was always one who was amazing at running. There would always be one that was amazing at running and always t- totally destroy everyone else. But most of them were utterly, utterly useless. Um, I don't know. What is the, what is the, so it turns out there's a new, um, a new TV show coming where Eddie Hall, former world's strongest man and Ross Edgeley, who is constantly 
constantly almost on the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> basically, as our profile builds as a podcast, we can get better guests. But unfortunately, Ross's profile is building at a faster rate than our profile. So while we can obtain some guests by, by our growth, he just becomes more unobtainable. Does that, does that mean that there's, when we do get guests on, we're getting them when they're kind of at a plateau on a downward spiral, just, just at that very point because we've caught up with them. Yeah, either that or a rest day. It's the, <laughs> yeah. it's their, or their kind of work, their charity work, work in the community. It's a pro bono, they're doing pro bono stuff. We'll speak to them for that. <laughs> but they seem to have they're doing a new show where from the articles I've read it seems as if Ross and Eddie uh, are going out and taking on various physical challenges yeah and one of them was the Navy SEAL challenge and so that involves doing various push-ups sit-ups pull-ups um, a swim and then you have to run a mile and a half yeah so 2.4k so you then have to run it in under 10 and a half minutes which which is actually quite fast for a mile and a half if you're a big guy. Yeah. So yeah. Ross said uh, they'd all they'd all done that. You know they managed the rest of it. The um, so it's ten pull-ups, fifty push-ups, and then a mile and a half run, five hundred yard swim. You have to do ten ten thirty for the mile and a half run, and twelve thirty for the five hundred yard swim. So Ross had said to, because Ross, Ross is a fairly all-round guy, you know, he's, he's run a, well, he's done a marathon, but he's pulling a, pulling a mini. Um, but he's, he's, he's done a triathlon carrying a tree before. So he's got endurance in there as strength. He said to Eddie, just stick with me and I'll pace you to the perfect pace. So you'll do this. But then Ross, I mean, I don't know this intentional neg negging, Ross then absolutely spanked it and finished it in 9.15, which is pretty good. Six-minute miling for someone his size. Yeah. But how, what do you reckon you'd do? I don't know. You've got to lay it out there. I don't know. I haven't got a clue. I, don't, I have no idea how long that would take me. What would your 5K be? What, right now? What, what's, what's your PB 5K? So my 20... PB 5K is 21.13. So I, but I, I think at the moment I, about 24. Oh, so you'd be coming in at about a little, oh. so even halving, halving it's 12 minutes. Yeah. Let's quickly find where exact time is. It doesn't stay at the top. So Eddie came in at 11.27, which really? I think is quite impressive. See, the thing is, Eddie Hall's really interesting. Have you ever watched the Eddie Hall documentary? Yeah, on yeah, yeah. See, so, yeah, because he he was a swimmer, wasn't he? So he has a he has a, a a certain level of health. And when you see him swim, it's weird because you're not used to seeing such a muscle bound person doing that kind of movement and everything. But yeah, Can you imagine the drag though, because isn't it all about drag in the water? And he's just so big. Yeah, but he was he was a swimmer. He was a, a, a like a really good swimmer before he started doing all the all the, all the weight training. And so I think that makes a massive difference because you have, unlike, you know, a lot of like the bodybuilders who are just literally, they, you know, they do this movement all day, different movements all day, mm. and they don't have any sort of functional fitness. He, he's had that. I don't know how much he keeps up with that, but he certainly, from, from watching that documentary, certainly keeps up with the swimming. So I imagine 
that that probably helps that massively. So that is your next target then, because you've got beat to Eddie now, Hall. you've got to beat the strongest man in the world. So what did he have? What was it? You've been doing for years. Eleven twenty-seven. Eleven twenty-seven. What was the distance? A mile and a half. half. Mile and a half. Yeah. And you know that's easy for you to do bad as you've got to do it twice. That's you've got to beat that. And they've got to. And what? And the is ten thirty is the Navy Seal. Yeah. Ten thirty. Right. Which try that? I'm going to try that this week and see how I get on. Yeah. 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 You've got to beat Eddie. That's the... Can I beat Eddie? Strongman Eddie. Strongman Eddie, absolutely. So we'll do batters, post in the group if you can't do it, or if you can do it, or who's the closest to Eddie, and um, we'll set up a little Facebook group uh, post where you can tell us your times. Now, we've, we've talked about issues in Iran, and our next guest actually is... He's, I think he's led trips to Iran, but I know, I know James, James Wilcox, because he is essentially one of the most exciting travellers in the world who brings running the new continents and new countries. Take it away, Nick. So, do batters, we quite often talk about issues or talk to people who aren't necessarily runners themselves and and the topic isn't right bang in the middle of our usual topics of conversation but i wanted to get james on for a while because as some of you who've listened from the beginning probably know quite a few of the races i've done in far-flung places have been because of an organization called untamed borders so that includes the afghanistan marathon and the somaliland marathon but I've also talked about some other races they've done in, in Iraq and pretty much all across the world. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get James on, who is the founder of Untamed Borders. He, just to give you a bit of a overview, he doesn't organize the marathons himself, but he's the individual who set up the organization, who then gets a race director in. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get his view on what the bringing of these races to these communities has been but also from an adventurer's point of view i know most of us at heart are pretty big on adventure and we like to travel so i thought even if we're not talking about running untamed borders itself is so interesting and getting an understanding of these countries post-war so um to fill us in and all of that is the founder of untamed borders james wilcox Hooray! hello david how are you doing Good, good. Did that did that summarise thing okay? Did, did that kind of make sense on positioning you right, would you say? Absolutely. I was just sort of chewing here on a, on a caffeine bullet and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, no, I, I think that's fair enough. I think that, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what Untamed Borders does is, is take people to places they might struggle to, um, to go themselves, to organise stuff themselves. Yeah, I mean, how did, what was the first trip? Like, how did that, first arise well the 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 start of untamed borders um was basically myself and uh kalsar who you've met um in afghanistan and also a uh, another guy from pakistan and they were they were basically fixers uh for journalists for documentary makers for photographers for researchers and that was their, their their kind of job i i met up with them they were very keen to 
branch out of that and do more tourism work. They occasionally work with tourists in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And the three of us kind of set up um, Untamed Borders on the back of that. So they had quite a, a bit of experience on it. And I just, you know, was kind of in, in the right place at the right time or in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's where we began. And we began with, you know, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. We still do a, a huge amount of work there. But how, how that, were you in those places to begin with? Cause I was just that's... kind of traveling, traveling around, you know, sort of um, backpacking around. Um Around, around those areas. I'd always had a big love for Central Asia. So the the former Soviet Central Asia, so Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. And once you travel in those areas in Iran, you know, Afghanistan is kind of like the the center of Central Central Asia. And it's mm. almost, you know, sort of calls you to go there. Because you were, because the whole purpose of, and the, I guess the whole benefit of your organization is it allows people that aren't clued up locally to be able to travel there but obviously for you to be traveling there the first time around that didn't exist so were you just taking a huge risk entering these countries or is that your background anyway and and, and how did you then come to meet Kalzar and, and and co um i mean look when, when this was happening whatever 2007 when i when i when I, I met those guys and we you know 2007 2008 when we kind of um started untamed borders and i mean it wasn't quite uh the pre social media age you know sort of things like mm. facebook had just started things like crowds uh couch surfing had just started you could you know people were blogging um it, it's not quite the world it is now but there was information. It was, you know, it was still a, a step on from the days where the only information you had was like the Lonely Planet and those little sketches you had in the in the hostel books to tell you how to get somewhere. Mm. This was like there was information about places. There was kind of real time information about where you might be able to stay, uh, what routes were safe, what places weren't safe. So there was a little bit of kind of that stuff. But I guess it was. I guess I was uh, younger and had uh, was you know uh, had a bigger appetite for risk perhaps than I than I do now. And do you think, um, maybe a question for later, but do you think things like Instagram and, and Facebook have actually made traveling in dangerous places more dangerous because of that access of information to everyone is so much more, it's so much easier for people to find out that someone who could be a target is local? Um, I think it's made travel much more accessible you know you you just can just find information about uh really off the beat places that unless someone from national geographic or the rough guide or somewhere had been how would you know about them how would you know about these little like off the beaten off the beaten track places mm. but now for anywhere for, for any country in the world you've got people that travel domestically i mean even in pakistan now i see pictures of, of things that i i never knew were there there was uh, just we posted on our instagram page this mountain that when you turn on its side looks exactly like donald trump and, <laughs> and uh, i've got a gig on that sorry i've got a <laughs> sorry listener we're gonna have to take out <laughs> you know what the name of the mountain is and i forget it at at, um, at untamed borders uh, on our instagram i think it's only it was only last week wow i wonder who first discovered the exactly like in the pre-internet age when would the, by the time someone had gone there donald trump would be gone and then like they wouldn't like be like it wouldn't be so exciting so uh accessibility is there like information is there which in one way makes things safer because mm. you have more real-time information about security and safety and things like that but on the flip side it means people are going to push the envelope a bit more <laughs> so it's good isn't it this is a dead ringer 
<laughs> it is good. They need to do a bit more of his hair. Maybe they it's can a mountain. That. It's not like they can do something with it. This is geology. This is like got uh, shoulder and everything. That's this great. is plate tectonics. <laughs> <laughs> is that now going to be one of your trips, the Trump Marathon? Well, it well, you never. It could be. Can you imagine? That would be the, the backdrop. Everyone would have to lie down for the the greatest marathon. <laughs> Sorry, as you were saying, I really interrupt you with a giggle. <laughs> um, the, yeah, so, I mean, play, everywhere is, is more accessible. Everywhere is potentially uh, um, more accessible, which in one way makes things safer, but it also means people are going to go to places that are potentially less safe because mm. they've got, you know, they have more, the more knowledge you have, the more you're likely to take that risk. I think as well, you... As you mentioned, you know, you you could do your research previously, but the difference between going online and Googling for somewhere that is is fairly unknown, you're going to have amongst the two or three websites that are useful, news reports, you're going to have a real sense of actually what life is like in that area. Whereas now, with Instagram and all these other newer touristy style articles it's quite possible you could travel to somewhere not realizing quite how dangerous it is because those those aren't very they're not going to be at the top of the search rankings the stories of the wars and the stories of um it, it's, it's polluting the actual sense of danger i think so although having said that if you googled you know Mogadishu and put in hashtag Mogadishu into, uh, <laughs> into any social media account, you're not going to have like people sunbathing on Lido Beach. Well, you might do, but it'll be, it would be hidden well within a lot of other stuff. So, I mean, up to a point, up to a point you will, but I mean, I think a lot of the places we work in, they don't see many tourists. They don't see many people visiting. And therefore, um, I, I, you know, what we do, what actually we try and do a lot is as well as, you know, us being a company and taking people there to have like, you know, hopefully great experiences is try and turn the narrative a little bit so that the narrative on Afghanistan or, Som or Somalia or Iraq is a little bit broader. So, you know, it, the example of, you know, you came to the first marathon of Afghanistan. It's a story about international people, men, women running together in a beautiful part of Afghanistan. And that doesn't fit with the narrative that most people have, which is about extremism and violence and mm. corruption and various other things. So that is something we try and do is, as you said, to try and uh, a little bit like what you said, you know, when people do put their hashtag in of Afghanistan, they might see something uh, that might surprise them, something that's like uh, shows something, some normality and, uh, and people wanting to run distance races, for example. And with, we're coming to the running section, I guess, once we've, reached that in the life of, of untamed borders but when you first then put on the first okay so was the first trip to afghanistan or pakistan uh it was it was it was kind of both so it, it was a bit of a hybrid because i think as i said these guys um they had their own you know sort of contacts they'd worked with work with professional people but mm. i went off and was like i know what I'll, you know i'll try and drum up some people to go sort of independently and I, I had no idea what I was doing, but I did contact um, pretty much every English-speaking university in the world, their mm. like political to political um, society, and was like, you know, you guys should, you know, if you're serious about being a really cool political society, you should, you know, 
joined a trip to us to Pakistan and Afghanistan. And uh, there was a, a small group from uh, Oxford University uh, came with us. So that was kind of, I guess you could say that's the first trip that I, you know, we organized that had come sort of directly through me. And that was to both Pakistan um, and and Afghanistan. And overall, I think it went quite well. I mean, in, in some ways, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, in other ways, we just showed them the, the kind of things that we'd, those guys would show, you know, journalists by taking people to uh, the tribal areas outside of Peshawar, which is the tribal areas of an area um, close to the Afghan border, which don't have to follow uh, the rules of Pakistan. Uh, it's a legacy of the of the British Empire where they made um, this kind of buffer zone where the tribal people could just follow the, the traditional tribal laws. But what's that meant? What that has meant in the modern world is that things like, you know, guns and drugs and fake money can be sold openly because they're not illegal. And then they get moved into Afghanistan or somewhere like Pakistan. So we took these guys wow. into there. How, how big is that region? Um, it's quite big. The seven tribal agencies. So um, it is quite big. I mean, you, it's very difficult to get to now. It was a bit more fluid mm. back in those days in the late, in the late noughties and so yeah so they met like this tribal chief they would you know showed the various things that he sells and literally uh, anything goes in that area up to a point up to a point um i mean this tribal chief would um yeah i mean he was a very nice man he basically was like if you can imagine like a sort of combination between like a 40 year old um sort of uh, pashtun tribal look tribal guy but in like effectively the room of a sort of 14 year old boy because he had this big sofa his playstation a massive tv <laughs> and like people waiting on him and uh just sort of showing off all his guns and things like that <laughs> so it was a kind of crazy uh crazy situation but they seemed to have a good time uh and then they went back to oxford <laughs> and they all go and play fifa football or something <laughs> <laughs> well then they got back to oxford all wrote about it and told the society committees about it and they were told they were never allowed to go there again so it was a short-lived um because of the danger element yeah basically you can imagine it's like a mm. kind of semi-official university thing to places mm. with like government uh, travel warnings uh so we took some students from lse the next year and then that was it we, we managed i'd managed to kind of create a uh, uh, a bit of community with other sort of tourism and the students were, were never a uh yeah do we, we that was the last time we uh we did that and did you at the time then because my understanding from the, just from the trips i've been to and the people i've met it's it's not really students who go on these trips anymore is is that um was when you first created the trips were you envisioning it being that gap year studenty style organization or not really it's just we didn't have many uh we didn't have many guests. We didn't have many um, uh, clients. And I just was trying to contact as many. It was just trying to get a. Because they're easy to find, aren't they? Yeah, those, get the word groups. out. Do you know what I mean? And, and mm. when uh, this was. Yeah, I, I didn't really know what I was doing in that respect. Uh, we were sort of trying to do marketing and travel shows. And I was giving talks and things like that, which got the word out. Um, and that worked quite well and but the yeah that was just something to kind of it was just an idea to work on uh, and it turned out that was our kind of first uh our first group and so when you when you set up these chits so what's different about going there in person when you first went and 
taking a whole new a whole group of people like what what are the considerations and and aspects that change uh, i mean traveling by myself compared to traveling with a group um i mean i don't i mean when it's with a group if i go so but of course people arrive you need to set the parameters for what everybody can do and what they can't do and by having a larger group a larger group is just less agile mm. um you have to tell them what is going to happen so you have to kind of stick to a plan uh of where you're moving to there's the the local guys it's just you have to you have to very much make sure that everybody understands uh what the rules are you know what's allowed and what's not allowed and kind of buys into it buys into the spirit that we're in afghanistan we're going to have a good time, but there are restrictions that you have to manage. Whereas if I'm by myself, obviously I want to keep myself safe, but I kind of know what those restrictions are. I can push them a little bit because it's just me, or I can uh, be a bit more adaptable. I can change things up if if, if I want to. So I, I can be a little bit, I guess, a little bit more flexible as an individual i could be more more flexible as as two people if i'm just with one mm. other international person i can be a bit more flexible whereas for example when we do the marathons we do turn up um with uh 20 runners each year which is by far the biggest group we would take to afghanistan and mm. uh, we have to really we break that that group especially in kabul into much smaller units uh to travel around because 20 people is just is just way too much to kind of control uh and to manage in any kind of meaningful way and do you find that by the the nature of the trips, the people that turn up tend to be fairly savvy and understanding? Or have you had some people who are very new to foreign cultures who almost see it as being a, a standard package holiday? Um, not quite that. Generally, people who travel with us are have travelled a fair bit. It's unlikely that someone is just like browsing a Thomas Cook brochure, and then it's like, where am I going to go this summer? I know I'll go to I'll go to Afghanistan. So people are going for a reason. They're not going because it's it's just the next. It's just somewhere to go, and therefore most people that travel with us are relatively experienced. But you kind of suggested that either people are experienced and therefore are, as in they've travelled to a number of places uh, and are therefore savvy and kind of listen to what you do and don't expect to sort of package holiday or they're less experienced. I mean, we've had, there was a guy who came and it was his first time outside Europe to go ski touring and he was great, super easy to manage because mm -hmm. everything was new to him. He was definitely listening. Usually you get some somebody who's travelled a lot of places. In, you, you might get the most difficult are usually people who have travelled a lot to a lot of places, often travel independently mm. and possibly think they know better than we do. Mm. And that's just a case of managing that kind of profile and either reasoning with them that this is a group trip and this is the rules and either you've, you've got to do it or potentially uh, – trying to put the fear of god into them a little bit and explaining what would happen you know the worst case scenarios <laughs> and various things so it depends i mean usually i mean for me or for any of the the guides we're fairly experienced in this you know you get the group together in any group of people you know who's going to you know after a couple of days you know who's going to be the last one down the person you've got to hurry along who's going to be on time mm. Who is going to be taking pictures of things they're not supposed to be taking pictures of? Who's going to be listening to you? Who you can kind of trust if, like, you have to split the group, you can kind of put someone in charge for a little bit. You know, you pick that up quite 
uh, quite quickly who you have to manage. And we've had some people. I remember there was an old, older German guy in Afghanistan. And I think if he'd been a lot younger, he might well have been kicked off the trip because he would always try and take photographs of um, of women, which in Afghanistan is really like it's not an, mm. a, a, a culturally acceptable. You've been there, and we did. I mean, we like you know when we were with the girls that had gone running, and we were being friends with them, and they were okay with it. It's not that you can't take a picture of any woman ever, but you can't just go down the street and take start taking pictures. But he was so old and wobbly. By the time he kind of got his camera out of his pocket and sort of <laughs> shaky hands and got it up one of us could kind of put our arm around him and push the camera back down again. Uh, and so we just had one of the drivers kind of stuck with him and kept him out of trouble. And it worked fine. You know, he was, and he's just from a different, perhaps a different generation. Um, uh, what, what type that, of rule, because you've mentioned a few <laughs> potential issues there. I mean, what, what type of rules would you say typically people need to, would need to be aware of in, in these countries? I mean, whenever we have a trip, is a bit of a briefing. But specifically, when you're looking at security rules, it can people leave uh, the accommodation without the without the guides? So you've been to the trips mm. we did in Afghanistan. The answer in Kabul is no. The answer in Bamiyan is yes. If it's in Bamiyan, I think you know we we'd kind of give you a rough idea. We'd say that you know everyone is pretty much fine in the day around the bazaar and those areas, but just as a precaution. If we had, uh, you know, it's best to travel with somebody else if it's after dark, you know, just be with another guest, not, not going around by yourself. As far as sort of security stuff is concerned about staying in the vehicles until we, we tell people to get out. Some places, as you know, we might be able to stop for quite a while and have a good look around and take pictures. Other places, it's a bit of a like, you know, we get out of the vehicles, take a quick picture, have a look, a quick description and get back in and just giving people briefings about that. There's things about people not posting stuff on uh, social media in real time, because if people do see the group, they might be able to kind of find that person's uh, social media page and then find out where we're going to go. There's about talking to people outside of the immediate group about where our hotel is, where we're mm. going, what we're doing in the future. So there's just a briefing and you don't want to give people too much information. You know, you stick to like five or six points um what people can photograph so no women no military installations or policemen or anyone with guns so it's what you can photograph what you're allowed to say uh whether you're allowed out of the building or not no social media you kind of stick with that to begin with at the briefing and then as things go along you can introduce things that are a little bit more nuanced and it's interesting that you need to tell people not to take photos of people with guns <laughs> i mean that, that seems so common sense but yeah then... but 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 often you i mean it's like people travel to countries for all sorts of reasons but mm. um people love having pictures to show their mates and and that's understandable and people love having their especially when people travel they love having their social media accounts don't they they love you know people love their insta and they're going to Afghanistan or they're going to Somalia. And there are lots of people with guns. There are lots of checkpoints and buildings and blast walls. And people want to show that. They want to show the experience that they felt. Um, and so, yeah, people love having a sneaky photo of a, of a, of a policeman. But usually we're like, on most of the trips, you know, you can find someone it i mean it's taking a picture from a car do you know what i mean of a guy on a mm. checkpoint in the heart of kabul where you know there are uh car bombs and there are suicide attacks like on a you know, whatever like monthly basis that's just not cool whereas if you're in bamiyan somewhere that's a lot more relaxed 
and as a policeman you can go and have a chat with him we can do some discussion you know everyone's so friendly and usually mm. then you can have a photo with a policeman you know because you've sort of made friends you're not just doing a picture with a long lens from the opposite side of the street of course that's going to scare someone it'll be the same in the uk you start taking a picture of uh uh policeman guarding mi6 they're going to come and pick you up but if you're not on hill carnival you can put your arm around a guy and it's absolutely fine it just depends a little bit on the uh on the location mm. so so when did you start to think of, what, what did the idea of a marathon rear its head um well i'll go back a little bit before that i mean i talked a bit about how you know untables you know it, we slowly were sort of starting doing things in afghanistan and pakistan a one thing that really sort of helped us get a bit of an identity and and in our small weird niche became a bit better known was organizing ski trips to afghanistan <laughs> and we did that in 2011 in 2009 there was a one of the expats in Kabul, I met him in uh, the Wakhan Corridor, which is a thin strip of land in the northeast of Afghanistan. He was trekking there with his girlfriend and he was a ski instructor in Europe. And he told me that he was like, look, we go skiing every winter. If you bring a group, I'll take a week off work and I'll, I'll guide them. And this was in a place north of Kabul called the Salang Pass. And I thought this will be good. Like, even if it's just for fun, you know, one trip, it's good for, uh, you know, a bit about sort of promotion, don't you, David? Mm. By sort of crazy things. Um, yeah, yeah. So organizing a ski trip to Afghanistan. I mean, it's perfect, isn't it? Um, but at the same time, this Swiss guy who was stuck in Bamiyan the year before, Bamiyan's in the central Afghanistan vowed that he'd come back with a load of skis and set up a, a, a ski race and there was a, a new zealand uh, tourism development program which which mapped out some ski touring routes uh, in that winter as well and so it all kind of came together and this winter 2020 was our 10th ski season in afghanistan and th at the heart of that was a race a ski touring race um <clears throat> and one of the help the organizers of that uh gul in 2015 he talked to me about he wanted to do something else like the ski the, the ski race was great but he talked about maybe putting organizing a marathon in bamian and whilst i thought this was a great idea i didn't know anything about organizing marathons uh but it was another guy another james called james bingham and he had he organizes an ultra marathon in anglesey every year called the mm. ring of fire and he'd been to Afghanistan three times, once to do a, an ultra run, a 400-kilometer run in the this uh, Wakhan corridor in the northeast of the country. When was uh, that? Uh, he did that in 2012, I think. So that it was wasn't an established... Okay. No, no, it wasn't a race. He just... Um, I don't know. You know, Bob, am I allowed to say an ultra run if you just do it by yourself? Is that Does that count? Yeah, I mean, I, I, absolutely. I mean, it is. It's, um, <laughs> it's an ultra run rather than an ultra race, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um, and... He was looking to do something else, and I was like, "Well, look, this guy Gould wants to do um, organize this this marathon. You should work together." But it's hard, you know. People on different sides of the world, like mm. cultural things, linguistic language issues. Like I could tell they were never quite. They both were keen, but they didn't quite get it done. And then I was like, "Okay, let's um, let. How about the three of us do it together?" And um, I think that worked quite well. I mean, you were there for the first. We literally, I was talking about it with Gull in, in in March, and then I spoke to Bing about it in sort of June, and we did it in September, October? Yeah, it would have been September, October, yeah. Yeah, and, and 
just you, it was whatever. We had uh, three international runners came out, a bunch of T-shirts, and uh, and just did it. And did you get a sense from Gould? Because was it driven by a enthusiasm for running locally, or was he thinking more from a commercial point of view, or was he thinking about something that would be good to introduce that they weren't aware of? Um, I think from Gould, it was to. I mean, so many good things came out of the skiing. Um, mm. There's a film called uh, Where the Light Shines, which is about two of the ski guides who um, one of them started skiing in 2011 when we did our first ski trip and one in 2012, Sajad and Ali Shah. And it's about their attempt to go to the Winter Olympics in Seoul in uh, 2018. And so out of the skiing came, yeah, some commercial uh, opportunity, but also... Bamiyan kind of came the centre of skiing in Afghanistan. And don't get me wrong, it's tiny, but, you know, two of the lads from Bamiyan uh, went to compete at, uh, you know, the International Ski Federation World Championships in, in, in Switzerland in 2017. Um, I won't tell you whether they went to the Olympics in Seoul or not. You'll have to watch the film <laughs> and find out. Um, and this... Um, so it was it was a mixture of things and the same for me one i saw an opportunity to bring tourists to like you runners to afghanistan and there was a commercial opportunity but i mean i put a lot of time and effort uh the same as james bingham and the same as gullin organizing the race and it's also a way to i don't even like to use the term put something back because I think that bringing tourism to Afghanistan is a positive thing in its own right, but to help develop something, to, to help uh, create hmm. uh, infrastructure and events, the same, I mean, Afghanistan does have a tourism board, but they don't do anything. But in the same way as a tourism board would create an event, you know, you know, not create or host an event, you know, you'd have the Love Parade in Brighton or you'd have other events to kind of create interest in the country to create a uh, media interest, to create commercial interest, to do all that kind of stuff. And as, um, as you know, it's the only mixed gender sporting event in, in, in Afghanistan um, ever. And it's to do all of these different things that are beneficial um, to Bamiyan and, and to the region. And so Gul felt that, and I felt that, and we kind of got James Bingham involved because he uh, want just thought the idea of organizing a race in Afghanistan would be a kind of crazy thing to do. So we all had our own motivation, but I think Gould's motivation is very much like me. There was a bit of a commercial interest, but really it was also, it just would be a good thing. And when you come up with an idea like that, how do you then take it from, because you've, you've got your network, you can bring the people, but how do you actually embed it in the community? Um, I mean, very much, I mean, one of the advantages in working in somewhere like Afghanistan or Somaliland is, I mean, one of the disadvantages, one of the things that's very hard is there are lack, the lack of kind of um, governmental and, you know, administrative infrastructure and organisations, you know, mm. the, if, if something goes wrong, you know, people don't have a safety net. Um, there's never going to be any furloughing in uh, in in Afghanistan. You know, the, the government is very weak and has very sort of little weak controls. Mm. The advantage of that, if you're putting on a race and you're trying to be a race organiser, 
is you can pretty much turn up with a bunch of t-shirts and go and see the governor and say oh we're going to put on a race and he's like yeah sure do you want to check with the chief of police and the chief of police goes what did the governor say and we're like well he said it was fine julie's like well that's cool when, when are you going to do it and it's pretty much as simple as that so on one hand places like like in afghanistan it's oddly easy as long as you kind of go in with enough uh, confidence everyone will um support you to do it and that's what i i knew from doing the ski the ski stuff that if we just turned up and we organized an event it would it would happen and, and how do you turn up at the governor's house um I, this sounds almost this sounds quite colonial but i mean somewhere like afghanistan the, the only international people that are the majority of the international people in Afghanistan are working for a development organization, a business organization, or a media organization. And these are all people that uh, uh, provincial governors are interested to see because they think it might involve money or um, exposure. And so it's very difficult for um local people to see the governor because the governor holds the the budget for the whole you know province mm. but as an international person it's surprisingly easy to do it's quite sh- it's quite shameful really um because it's just a running race and afghanistan has a lot of other problems but that's that's the reality but i think in a way that's where the strength of the race comes is that it can bypass potentially all of those obstacles to to create something that if you tried to create the community aspect and you tried to create the exposure and to get foreign tourists there by other means would be darn impossible yeah absolutely and look it is a positive event i mean there's no it's not like there's anything underhand going on um and i think in a way this this uh this um approach is much easier in Bamiyan because Bamiyan isn't the capital. So there are no, the Olympic committee isn't based there. There's no real, you're not treading anyone's on anyone's toes by doing it. You know, there isn't really a, a, an established running uh, organization that you're kind of uh, bypassing. Um, doing the same technique in Somaliland meant that the, the athletics federation of Somaliland felt a little bit sidelined and the the last couple of years we've kind of been working more with them to um ensure that they are as involved as possible in the race as well Mm. i mean we see it as complementary to the work that they're doing uh but i think there was a feeling that um we were there was some greater incentive for us um in in doing it and they were being uh, sort of sidelined financially which wasn't the case but yeah there's advantages and disadvantages of of kind of just doing it and then ask what's the 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 phrase you know you you ask for forgiveness later or something like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you don't ask for permission you ask to see forgiveness <laughs> you beg for yeah. forgiveness yeah absolutely yeah, which is very much my strategy in life as well um so was was bamyan then you did you look at other regions of Afghanistan too, or was it the first point of call because of the skiing? Um, for me, it was a for me it was a, a no brainer in that. Um, and th- there's kind of three places where potentially you could 
you could organize a race you know effectively you've got international people exposed you know from a security perspective for you know depends whether you're running or i'm running sometime between three and seven hours um and those three places are bam the, the reason for those are sort of geographical and uh, geopolitically and, and ethnically so the people in Bamiyan are Shia Muslims, whereas most of the rest of Afghanistan are Sunni Muslims and the Taliban and ISIS, who are the two major anti-government groups, are Sunni. So there's already – basically the Shia people just would not be part of um, the Taliban, which is why we can do it in, in Bamiyan. Um, one of the other areas is the Wakhan Corridor. I've mentioned it twice where James Bingham did this uh, ultra run. And that's actually where he wanted to do a race. He wanted to do an ultra. And – from my hat i mean commercially organizing a like logistically and commercially organizing uh, a, a an ultra is just so much harder and mm. the area he wanted to go is extremely remote um it's kind of you you, you go you know sort of two and a half three days travel from you'd actually have to come in from tajikistan you wouldn't even get in from kabul because that's the quickest way of getting there but it's still two or three days by car um, to get to where you would sort of start it and so Bamiyan as you know is a fairly short flight uh, from uh, from Kabul mm. um, and so for me it was the only realistic place to um, to organize it and there's so much other stuff to see there I mean I don't want to make it seem like a a a um, you know, like a like a tourism board sort of thing, but you were there, like those lakes at Bandiamir, the the old forts, mm. the Buddha niches. Like yeah. there is genuinely, a, you know, things to do uh, whilst you are acclimatizing, whilst you're there for a few days before the race. Um, there's a fairly sort of packed thing. And now, since you're there as well, you, obviously you know we work with Free to Run, the organisation that provides safe space for women to do uh, sports in post-conflict countries one of the days before the race as well we do like a sort of hiking trip into the mountains with the the girls from free to run which generally is a highlight of everybody's sort of mm. trip as well so that's sort of week before there's just lots more to do in Bamiyan. there's just more to see and people get to experience um afghanistan a bit more so for me Bamiyan is the perfect place for kind of those kind of outdoor activities really and and when you go into these areas because you you obviously had those relationships previously with some of the people involved but um you do often hear about levels of corruption in the developing world and obviously being a westerner where the people going are, are all very well off um you know stand out have how do you like how, how much potential corruption is there and is that something you've had to deal with and how do you kind of avoid it I mean, a lot of the countries that I work in um, figure on, depends how you look at it, the highest or the lowest places um, when you look at um, levels of uh, corruption in, in doing business. Mm. Um, as far as the races are concerned, certainly in Afghanistan, I think being in, in Bamiyan helps a lot. Like I said, you're away from the official committees. Um I think most organizations a bit like, I mean, it's understandable if you're in the UK and somebody comes over and says, right, I'm going to organize this, uh, this big event. And the British athletics association is just like, 
Hmm. the official local organization is kind of sidelined they'd be like well why this is crazy you're coming in and just and doing but if you kind of just funnel everything through there then yeah um things will you know it's it's difficult and this is not to pass this is not to just to be clear i don't see sort of this kind of we look at corruption as being something that's very extremely bad don't we and and kind of in slightly inhumane but uh i've always looked at it in a slightly different way the i mean there have been the idea that you would favor somebody like from your family or somebody from your um wider um um ethnic group or something like that is i mean there's been studies shown by psychologists that if they you know people believe stories and people will favor people uh, who have shared DNA or who are family members or things like that. And effectively kind of corruption and helping out people who are kind of close to us is a natural kind of human state. So Mm. uh, the idea of a kind of like Western meritocracy is actually not, doesn't come naturally to humans uh, as people. So I don't see the kind of and and just to get a position to get a governmental position or a position in the olympic committee in kabul you're you're kind of put there and someone's paid you to go there and you've got to somehow pay that money back so it's the system is corrupt i'd always think or the system is encourages that kind of thing rather than the system is um rather than rather than people are specifically that's the way that's the way that i see it um but yeah, I mean, there are stuff. There are things. I mean, in in Somaliland, I remember the first year we were there. I mean, it wasn't a huge amount of money. There was a, an amount of money that was maybe one hundred and fifty dollars that initially went apparently to pay for the the press to get the press there at the press conference. But it, eventually, we kind of dealt with that, and that, the one hundred and fifty wasn't for that. And then that the another cost came up, uh, and it wasn't for that. And it's hundred. It was fine. This for like two weeks. The hundred and fifty kept moving around. Eventually, it was for the stadium cleaning, which of course it never got clean, cleaned. <laughs> but there's probably the amount of money it probably needed to be paid. We don't know exactly what it was for. Like the, the certain things uh, are done, and a, a small amount of stuff in tips for like you know people at the hotels who move stuff around. There's you know there's there, there is a uh, a way of there are people there that help out that it's a, you know it's kind of culturally to give people little bits of tips. But generally speaking, I'd say it's it's not a lot. I mean the events are not huge. You know they don't have huge budgets. Mm. Um, the two events that I'm very much involved with in Somaliland and um, Afghanistan. I mean the the money that puts them on are from the like the the Afghans and Somali landers don't pay an entrance fee. So the international runners. And there's some small sponsorship from um, uh, or larger sponsorship from local um, organizations, uh, Etislad, which is a mobile phone company in Afghanistan, and Dahab Shil, which are a, a kind of big conglomerate and a bank in Somaliland. And so we just try and manage the money that the, the best we can. There's not a huge amount to try and sort of cream off. So, no, I don't find it too bad in what we're doing. Um and um, out of interest, just to, yeah. like, from a psychology point of view, when when you're asked, say, for that 150 or when the explanation for the 150 is given to you, um, judging from how they speak to you, do you get a sense that they know 
that they're creaming from the uh, taking the cream a little bit. Um, in, in, you know, can you see from their eye contact and their uh, the way they position themselves that they clearly know they're doing something that um, is is a bit off, or is it so embedded in just the way that things work that actually it's almost like asking for a t- for the you know to pay the tip at a restaurant? Yeah, I'd say it was. I'd say it was. Um, I mean, I think the first, without getting into you know too much detail um, in that specific situation, um, there was very much an idea of uh, different people had an idea. There were different people who had an idea of of how the, of how the event was going to go down mm. and how it was going to be organized. And clearly this money had been sort of promised for some, for, for something. And perhaps, perhaps it did go to the press. I mean, we, in, in, in the late, in the subsequent years, the press has been, um, it's been in the, the, the sponsors have been responsible for, organizing all of the press and maybe they do have to pay them some money to turn up i think that sometimes does happen uh in certain parts of the world especially when they have their sponsorship stuff plastered over everything mm. so so maybe that was the case and um there was a that it, it's hard it's also hard for because if we just say that's not how it can go and this is corruption, obviously that kind of corruption, it happens, but it's not supposed to happen. So if we kind of call people out on it, it's tough. It is really tough because like someone's been promised something and we're not letting it go. And how do, how do they get around that? Like if we're, we're not from that, that, um, that community, so what pressure can be we don't have a, an office there we're not working there what can they what pressure can they actually put on us it's, and it's quite it's quite interesting the the the, the dynamic there's there's certain advantages of just coming in and organizing something and going away again uh, there's disadvantages from it as well but th- some of the advantages are yeah you can come in and sort of act ignorantly and just say well you know why why is that and speak to the minister about it which we did who would say no no of course of course, the press doesn't ask for money. You know, they're an ind- they're, that would be awful. You know, the press can't do things like that. And probably it was, but because they're not supposed to. Um, and so, yeah, we can somehow get away with things that, that, that locally people wouldn't be able to. And, and I think my worry would be because, you know, as, if, as you say, with, with English athletics, for example, yeah. the real big difference would be um, once you're dealing with England athletics, you know, if they say yes, you're sorted. Mm. Have there has there been an element of when there is when it's not as clear where the power resides and who actually needs to be involved? Does it cause problems when you're trying to organise a race, or even when you come back that suddenly new individuals appear who may or may not be incredibly influential? who then may also be asking to be involved or asking for um, elements where it's very hard to actually judge who the right person and what the right thing to do is. 
Yeah, it's tough. It, I mean, it's tough. Like Somaliland, I we, we I could do. It, it's it's almost it's very hard to explain. But in one respect, yeah, I mean, look, by in 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 Bamian, it's very easy because the governor um, is very keen on the race. He's very supportive of the race. He's given not every year, but he's given the presentations at the race, and he can show to the rest of Afghanistan and the president and everybody, look, my province is safe enough to put this kind of thing on. You know, it for him, it's a no-brainer. Mm. In Somaliland, on a higher level, so the some of the ministers for Somaliland are very happy with it. Um, and the sponsors are... You, they own basically half of the companies in um, in Somaliland. They're, they're huge. And they're, the owner of that is very keen on the race. We always give him a shirt. He always sees us. And so we have the very, very influential people supporting us, mm. which makes it extremely hard for the Athletics Federation, who have felt that they've been kind of sidelined and really, all we want to do is put on the race. And if they were going to mm. take credit for it, that's fine. But I think they've always felt that we're, um, <laughs> we are kind of sidelining them and potentially taking some sort of income for ourselves. Uh, but I think this year it, it, it helped out a lot. And there's lots of issues there as well. I mean, this is like an athletics federation that has literally no money. I mean, you can mm. understand that. And therefore, there's a race in which is sponsored by the biggest organization, has these like sort of technical T-shirts, has, uh, you've, I mean, you were there for the first one. I mean, it's not mm. like the London Marathon, but it looks okay. Um, mm. And everyone's like, oh, you're the Athletics Federation. So why, why are we not involved in this? Why are we not getting paid to put this on? Look, there's all this money involved. And I think they, it, it's hard for them. It's really hard for them. Um, because if it was, but then again, the sponsors don't trust them with the money. So it's a tough, it's a bit of a, uh, a tough thing, but that's kind of the fun of working out, in, you know, <laughs> on there is, is trying to navigate through all of this. And so, cause you've, you've obviously mentioned James and, and just as a little plug, those who, who may or may not know James, he does the, um, the ring of fire in Anglesey is his big race. If you want to do one of his, his European, uh, ventures, but, um, yeah, with the, with the organization of the race itself, then what, what issues are there in trying to, like, is, is there an understanding of the marathon distance in these countries that, that people naturally are therefore, um, able to set up appropriately or do, do you face real cultural issues in trying to actually explain what it is we're doing oh god yeah i mean the, i mean you were there for the first one in afghanistan i think mm. so and in somaliland mm. um i know that you were off you know sometimes you were kind of you know a bit involved you know seeing what we were doing with the organization but yeah people don't really know like the term marathon it seems to be a bit of a catch-all for a long-distance race in a lot of places. So that people will do their five-kilometer marathon or their ten-kilometer marathon or these kind of things. Mm. So uh, just listing marathon doesn't actually mean anything. Uh, you've got to say forty-two kilometers, and then people sometimes are a little bit shocked because it's an insane distance, really. I mean, if you're just kind of doing, I mean. I think uh, you've heard about it. The first time that marathons were run, you know, the Olympics and things, nobody, people just didn't finish. Mm. Or they had a nap under a tree 
or they cheated or whatever because it is really far i mean yeah let's be honest about it yeah <laughs> let's be honest so yeah it, it's um Somalia Somaliland less because they, you know it, they border Kenya, they border Ethiopia. You know, um, Somaliland has an understanding of, of of distance runners, and there's there's some good runners there. But certainly in Afghanistan, that like uh, Afghans are not sort of natural distance runners for their sort of uh, physique. But yeah, trying to explain to, like the first year is is always difficult with the volunteers and all of these kind of things. You have your plan of how you're going to set out the checkpoints, how it's going to go. You try and explain to the police and all of these things. And you'd like the night before there's no sleep. I don't think there's any sleep for most race directors, but you've basically, you know, a week before nobody has any, you know, you've kind of not just creating a race out of a bunch of volunteers, but you're creating a race out of a bunch of volunteers that have never seen what a long distance race actually looks like. So or no even clue. a long distance runner as well, and what they may need and how yeah, well, they may react. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but I mean, but the first time, even in Somaliland, all of the medics were like massively disappointed that they didn't see more sort of injuries and things like that. We had so <laughs> many nurses and doctors; they were just kind of waiting for like for, for stuff to be done. And it's it is exciting. It is exciting um, creating that out of out of. I, I kind of out of nothing, aren't, nothing, aren't you? you? That's the whole point with a, any any kind of event. You're just you start off with nothing, and and yeah, you you make it happen with with the vision and with the will and the belief of a lot of other people, which is an, it's an amazing thing to do. I love it. And would you say that Afghanistan was running seen as a leisure activity in Bamyan before we went there? Um, or before free to run potentially, but free to run or the marathon. No, I'd say no. Um, I mean, you've 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 been to Bamiyan. I mean, we went to. Didn't we go up and have lunch where you got sick in like a small village? Y- yes, that's right. We. We, we did a couple of trips. We did a dinner, and I think it was maybe the dinner that got me. But we we went to see, I, th- I believe, one of the two who tried to go skiing in uh, the Olympics. Um, so that kind of rural, just to t- sort of paint the picture, that, you know, this is a sort of place with almost no, you know, maybe no electricity. You know, the, the wheat's getting threshed by a sort of bullock pulling a sort of log around. There's a river, you know, it's... It's kind of idyllic, but it's extremely poor and, and everything is done manually. You know, there's there's no equipment for that on that farming, is there? Mm. I mean, there's a truck that came up to collect bags of potatoes, but those potatoes are turned over by a, a bullock and a guy holding a massive wooden plow and then picked up by people and put into the sacks. You know, everyone's and the majority of people in Afghanistan work in agriculture. So once you've been doing that all day, like going for a run is not a relaxing <laughs> uh, is not a relaxing option. I mean, it just isn't. And so, tr- even and traditionally, that th- that's not what you know. They were not sort of sports. All of that sort of a Persian and Turkic speaking world, uh, like wrestling, martial sports, horsemanship sports. Uh, these were the things that people were. They basically sort of trained in the old days. Trained people for battle. So. 
in cities people start doing a bit of running um cycling was something that had come to uh Bamian a little bit because practically getting around by bicycle makes sense people don't all, can't always afford transportation um but no before the race running was not seen as a as, as a huge thing and have you seen a shift has it changed slightly since the marathon's been there or is it more a special occasion once a year no for some people it definitely are that that they're they're training for it it's still it's not oh i mean for the for the 10k for sure because as you you know you know how it is like it's probably about a i think last year there must have been uh like sort of 150 for the for the marathon and maybe 500 for the uh for the 10k but people do yeah people do train more for it there is there is an upkeep in runners there's a group from kabul that come up every year um their main runner is is very good he he did one of the completed one of the courses in in three hours so he's i mean this is a a course that has a sort of 600 meter altitude gain Mm. and and you know the high point of that is like three thousand meters in altitude so doing that in three hours is 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 pretty special it's pretty pretty decent um and so yeah there there is an increase in it and i mean certainly with the in girls i mean out of that uh <clears throat> whatever 650 runners that ran the 10k in the mouth and half were were women um you know with with uh, something like 40 afghan women completing the the full marathon so for for women in sports the race has really been a kind of focal point for the work that that free to done has run so yeah up to a point it, it has changed uh to a degree what people are kind of focusing on with regards to uh with sport that's for sure and we mentioned a little bit about the competition the first year i was there there were there's there's always issues with making sure people don't cheat but also the 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 clan inter rivalry and the politics of someone winning when he's not from your clan has that been a consistent challenge in the country um i mean look afghanistan is very much a country that at times can be very divided on uh on ethnicity um there are the area in bamiyan which we've been talking about with the races the people there are hazara uh, they're a minority group. Uh, the majority groups are either Tajik or Pashtun, and we have a, a bunch of Pashtun runners come up each year. And yeah, it does become a bit fraught. Like last year, the there was a dispute between one of the local Hazara runners who won, or one of the Pashtun runners. And I think it does become a bit more heightened when it's a a local runner against a runner that's coming from from somewhere else. And as you've said, there has been. Uh, I think it's less now than that that first year, but there is uh, there always has been some cheating, and when there's not cheating, there's sometimes accusations of cheating, and I think that the idea of the idea this I don't want this to sound too uh, I, I want it to sound as 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 sort of polite as possible and, and as sympathetic as possible, but somehow sometimes in 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 Afghanistan the competition is wider than the how we might see the competition in the uk so um if you can get another advantage and and not be caught that's kind of seen as okay uh as long as you're not caught um 
which is not quite how the British like to see things. Um, so, yeah, I think people sometimes hitch a ride on something and if they can get away with it, they get away with it. And if they don't, they'll complain. But it's kind of like that's part of the game. Um, and yeah, it's not been too bad because, but yeah, the, 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 it, it can be an issue and you don't really want to be caught between that. You don't want to be caught between two, uh, two different groups. And actually in Somaliland, um, they have a lot of clan issues, but one of the issues we had was there was one running club, um, that was effectively backed by the army and one and the the uh, athletics federation which was backed by the government and they'd had a massive falling out and we had a slight concern that if there was some dispute about who won um those races you'd get caught between the the, the government and the army which is probably not where you really want to be in um certain parts of the world and do you think you do you arbitrate based on the situation rather than the absolute rule of fairness um i've seen the situations that we've had we've uh, we've done it on on what we on the evidence that we've had um and it's generally been unless um there's been very strong evidence that someone's cheated it's very hard to um disqualify someone without there being sort of strong evidence so i think we've we've uh we've done it on the evidence that we've had in front of us and do you think you would if would you be forced to side towards safety or towards politics if that arose <laughs> i mean if someone had a gun to my head to say <laughs> who finished first I would, well I'm, I'm not gonna say i mean as much as i like the purity of sport and the purity of competition um yeah i mean i'm not i'm, I'm not gonna do it but that's one of the reasons i i'm um in, in those two races that i'm heavily involved in on the day of the race i'm very much uh someone on the course managing it i'm not the um the race director I, I I pass that to someone else. Part of that is um, to avoid any kind of conflict of interests with, you know, the fact that my company organises the travel for certain people to the races. Mm. Uh, it's it's just a bit too much, partly because I work in those countries a lot. I don't really want to be seen as a uh, – I don't want to become too well-known um, because sometimes that's not a great idea for security. Mm. So on the day of the race, and thirdly, yeah, I don't want to be stuck between – two different so, ethnic groups fighting so basically away. you put the um the race directors in the snipers uh, vision absolutely look i've got a lot of <laughs> i've got a lot of i've got more experience in working in some of these countries than they have so you've got to use that to your advantage somehow <laughs> and um and how have you have you seen a a change in the communities then specifically because of the the race being there um i mean look it's it's exciting look i mean when we not this year because we tried to or it was still nuts at the registration but uh, two years ago at the registration in afghanistan there was such a throng of people trying to register those that got registered and got the t-shirt had to leave through the window because they just couldn't get back out the door that they came in like it was like nuts it was like literally kind of like shoulder to the door, letting one person in at a time. 
and sort of squeezing them in then slamming it shut because you just couldn't get back out there so one they've become really they've become big events like events that everybody wants to get involved in mm. uh, and and people just want to do it like they desperately want it like you know we 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 register people the night and some some people get pre-registered but we register most people the day before and like people would sell you know they'll sell the numbers to other people because like they really want to do it and to get down to the start you know people have to get on a a you know we have to give provide them transport and when i'm down there i mean it's tough you've got to have someone at the back of the buses because you only let people on the bus with a number and then they'll hand it down they'll hand their bus their number out the bus to a mate who will then run around the front and get on the bus as well so they can go down to and run to the start even if people haven't got a number so people are like really keen to do it um And, and what do you think it is they're attracted to in the event is it the this the exposure that it has by the governor is it the fact they can get the t-shirts is it the fact they just want to compete is it the westerners is it why do you think they it's actually want to be involved i think it's just it's like it's just an exciting thing like this this tv that like i don't know where you like um did you grow up in like a big town or a, or a small town i was always all over in the army so oh, okay yeah. But like, you know, when pe- people grow up in like a small town and then something, you know, happens there, there's like the big event that happens, the TV cameras come down, mm. um, people from outside come in, you know, the internationals are kind of exciting. Um, it's just an exciting event. And there's an opportunity to like watch it, which is OK, or you can like be part of it. And that's exciting. And I think people just want to get involved and i mean you were saying about what's changed i mean certainly um female participation has changed i mean in afghanistan uh maybe last year um i went running with some of the girls from uh, the free to run some of the afghan girls from the free to run organization and it was like the crack of dawn so it was sort of f- f- five five a.m and we must have w- run past like a dozen guys and the, the 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 dozen guys like going to work in the fields or coming into town or whatever walking along didn't bat an eyelid and like you know five six years ago that would have been like a really strange interesting scene like a bunch of afghan women going running together whereas it did it just didn't you know well just wasn't interesting because it's become certainly in bamia not the rest of afghanistan but certainly in bamia it's become more normal and the same in Somaliland, I mean, the first year we did it when you were there um, at the registration, there was a lady telling all the telling any girl that wanted to register that their uterus would drop out if they were going to run and they would die and all of this kind of stuff. And five girls ran and everyone was kind of like holding their breath. Is this going to be OK? And then last year we had 60 women running the, the 10K race. So and it's kind of like, yeah, that's it's actually OK. And that's the biggest change, I think, is that um, and in, in um, Somaliland, the, 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 this year, it was the first year they had prize money and we didn't organize any of the prize money. Um, you know, we've talked a bit about cheating and things like that. We, mm. You know, once you get prize money, that whole getting caught between two rocks, it becomes a bit trickier. Um, and the prize money was equal for men and women. Um, and that was nothing to do with us. That was just seen as the right thing to do. So I think there's been that though that's probably the biggest change that 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 I've seen. 
And was Somaliland, uh, was, was that a race there because it's somewhere you wanted to visit as well? Or did someone, did Enda come to you? No, no, Enda. I, uh, there was another guy called uh, Ollie. Oh, yeah, of course, Ollie, yeah. Ollie Seals. Ollie Seals, absolutely. And he's a bit of a runner. And he, um, his great uncle um, was a teacher at basically the sort of Eton of Somaliland for, I think, 30 years or something. He's a very well-known person, certainly within people of a certain uh, sort of demographic in Somaliland. So Mm. four, I think, of the five presidents of Somaliland were taught by him. So, you know, um, he's kind of influential in those kind of circles and ollie uh, ollie's family has a uh, he left a bursary and ollie's family have this small foundation that provides uh, tertiary education in Somaliland, and he wanted to put in a race to um to raise money for the organization and he kind of reached out to me and i was like yeah I'd, i'll get involved you know i'll be in the same way that i do in, the, in afghanistan and then we just needed somebody else so I reached out to Ender because I knew Ender from before and I thought he'd like the the, the, the lunacy of it all. And that's kind of how that, that, that got set up. So it was really, it wasn't my vision to have a race mm. there. Um, it was Ollie doing it and, and it feeling like there was enough of a, a team that were committed um, that I, I, I thought I could get involved in. And do you get a sense if... Um if the situation does go south in in either of these countries do you do you think the the races will continue do you think that now they're so embedded in the community that actually someone would step up and and say this is what we want to still con- to, to still happen um i mean it already has the in afghanistan um etisalat that sponsor the the marathon they sponsor mm. a winter sports festival on the lakes at Bandiamir, where you've been in the summer. They freeze over in the winter. Um, it looks like, so I, I mean, it, it's a, it looks amazing because there's like figure skating and ice hockey and curling and things. And like nobody, these are not traditional Afghan sports. So everyone's learned them in the last couple of years. <laughs> but Edisalat sponsor them, you know that's nothing to do with any international people that's Gull and some of the other guys who are like okay we want to do something else let's do like a sort of winter games and for Etislat they're like yeah we can get the media down there this is good for us we're, we're supporting some grassroots stuff in Afghanistan we know the guys so absolutely if, if uh, I mean James Bingham is not going to come out this year to Afghanistan um, and it's going to be run mainly by Gul and actually Ali Shan Sajad will get involved, who are the two ski, ski guys from the film uh, Where the Light Shines. And it's kind of pretty much a local affair. I mean, it's quite good having the international people there. I think we talked a little bit about corruption and things like that mm. and how being from outside of the local um, uh, system makes it a little bit easier and you're a little bit less corruptible. So having an international face there is quite handy. Mm. Um and in Somaliland, the Athletics Federation, uh, they, they, this year, I don't know how quite how to say this. Um, there was a bit of a dispute, and they decided they were going to put on the, an, another marathon the week before the <laughs> Somaliland <Classic>. marathon. <laughs> I'll politely say there was some confusion, um, and in doing so, spoke to 
alternative sponsors. And in fact, no, the very the very first year there was some confusion as well. And we had one telecommunications company sponsoring the race, and Ender was in the um, the sort of print shop where we get a lot of the signage and stuff printed up. And he saw these tracksuits getting made with the rival telecommunications company. Um, and I was getting like one's called Somtel and one's called Telesom. Like there's, you know, it's a sort of Somali term. And he's like, who are these for? And he's like, oh, they're for the um, Athletics Federation. So they'd already sort of brokered a deal with the with another rival sponsor to sponsor like the marshals um, at the race. So that... <laughs> In that respect, marketing, I love it. Yeah, but in that respect, it's already there. You know, it's already there that other other events are happening, um, and I think uh, I'm I'm not trying to say that this is not something that's already been uh, w- couldn't have been done, but I think by going out there with a bunch of t-shirts and saying and getting the the media and saying this is a good event, everybody sees it and is like, yeah, we can do it, and sponsors are like, yeah, that actually is going to work. And it's 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 something that has has been a bit of a template. Um, mm. I don't want to sound like I've you know I've changed the sports marketing in uh, Afghanistan Somaliland because that's not the case. And like people are very capable, and, and they don't people don't need me to, to to show how to do that. But I think it has um, I think it has helped. I think it's helped sort of push things along a little bit, which is great. I mean, it's absolutely great. And look, there's no real reason for me to be involved apart from like organizing transportation for people. But I want to still be involved in the races because I still want there to be, from a selfish perspective, I still want them to be races that international people are going to, it's going to appeal to them. Mm. Um, and also I'm very keen that the the sort of, the fact that they are available to everybody you know that it's easy for women to uh, be able to compete at the races that it's uh they're, they're not really sort of corrupt that money is put aside for things like the entertainment that you know that th- the money goes to as many different people as possible I, I still want to be kind of involved to make sure that it's it's kind of really is a community event which sometimes gets lost a little bit and, and did you have to fight initially to have women included um i mean with afghanistan ghul and i were very much like i mean look when i first started guiding in afghanistan uh the 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 subject of afghan women just seemed to be something that was a bit dangerous to be honest and probably best left alone um like most afghan men don't really talk about afghan women um and so i sort of followed suit um with the first race uh, it was james bingham was very keen and he was the one that reached out to, to free to run i wasn't a part of free to run at that point and he was very keen on it being a mixed gender event um stephanie who i think you've had on one of your uh, previous mm. uh, podcasts was organizing this was organizing you know for female runners and so it, it just kind of happened and it was okay um we didn't have have too much of an issue i mean there had been um a female cycling team there were female sports groups running's a bit funny because like you know in afghanistan people are okay with women doing sport but it's the mixed is it's it's the kind of mixed gender thing people are Mm. concerned about and 
running is a bit strange like that i mean is running a race you kind of run by yourself don't you but you're also running like with a few hundred other people in, in in a big race so it's a big a bit of a gray area whether it's a mixed gender sporting event or whether it's an individual sporting mm. event do you know what i mean it's kind mm. of pushing the boundaries a bit and in afghanistan because it's bamian and because they were working with free to run and because all of the girls are part of an organizational part of the schools and the schools had been consulted and the parents consulted it was okay in somaliland uh, again most of the women that run come through um sports groups or came through the hospital which is run by a, a very famous lady she's uh, a lady called uh, edna aden and if you want to know about her she was on desert island disc once she's had an amazing life she was um the first woman in somalia somalia to drive a car she was married to the president once um she now runs this maternity hospital um she's she's great and her she kind of suggested that some of her nurses ran the race and i think without her without her backing as well um it might have been more difficult but but once a few people ran all the somaliland men that we spoke to most of them were like they just thought it was more they were either people were fine with it or they would say oh but women don't really want to do that or they're not very good at running or why are they like it's not that it was wrong it was mm. other sort of little ideas came out but ultimately it's been fine, but we are very cautious because all it takes is for one thing to go bad, you know, for something to happen, for something to um, agree with some of these preconceived ideas that if you let girls go and do sports, they're going to be corrupted somehow. Do you know what I mean? It just takes mm. one girl who's part of like a free to run organization or involved in the smile and mouth and to be doing sports and maybe actually not do the sports, but meet up with her boyfriend and get pregnant or something like that, which can happen anywhere in the world for everybody, for people to say, well, look, that's why you shouldn't let girls do sport because it leads mm. to this. So it's, although things are going really well, I always feel that it's extremely delicate and, you know, one bad story can always um yeah affect it and are there any countries or regions that you'd want to try and replicate the races uh, where would you say is a a great untouched wilderness out there that is ripe for internationals to come and put in a race um well i'm i'm partly involved in one in mogadishu which is in somalia uh, which is an unusual race because it's within the airport, which is where all the international community and the military are based. Is that with Jody? Um, Jody Brown. Yeah, with Jody. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So uh, he's been doing it for four years. We've involved been involved in the last two years. Um, yeah, Jody's a good guy, and we organise packages to races that we don't organise in Iraq and in Saudi. But um, I was, I, I try, I, I went to the Congo to DRC um, to investigate doing a race on Ijwi Island, which is in the middle of Lake Goma, and it would be amazing. Like it would be an amazing race. I mean, uh, Ender, who you've met, and I went out there, and Goma, which is uh, in eastern DRC. Um, which is it's it's an amazing city it's right on the rwanda uh congo border it's got an active volcano sort of just hanging over it which erupted less than 10 years ago so the north side of the town all the streets are still sort of hardened lava um 
and Lake Kivu is occasionally has these big sort of gas bubbles come up that just sort of kill fishermen and also the eastern drc is extremely unstable with different um sort Mm. of anti-government groups so goma is is it's an amazing city i mean it's super lively and but it's you know it's kind of a place on the edge and but every six o'clock every morning in goma oh no i'm not every morning on a sunday morning if you go like the whole of the center of goma is cut off and there is just like runners everywhere it's amazing there's like people doing like either running or like big squads of people like 50 people running in kind of step in these running groups or people doing sort of aerobics or these calisthenics exercises thousands of people in downtown goba doing exercise every sunday and we were going to have the race on Idjwi Island, which is in the middle of Lake Kivu. And again, it's in an island, so it's kind of a secure place. And we kind of worked it out. Like for the 10K race, there's a boat. We got the cost of the boat. We'd kind of get everyone loaded up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday. We'd register everyone on the boat, chugging across the lake with the volcano smoking in the background, get onto the island. The island has the indigenous population of the island are pygmies, and there's like a sort of um, hereditary chief of each half of the island. So we went to see him, brought him a few bottles of wine. He gave us permission to put it on. And oddly enough, we assumed he'd be, a, he was like basically a pygmy king, but he's like, he's taller than me. He was like six foot four. And it, <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out, yeah, it turned out he was the chief, but he wasn't actually, you know, he's from, from somewhere else. But he's definitely the tallest pygmy king um, I've ever seen. So this lake on Idri Island would be pretty spectacular um but we just didn't i don't know it just felt like unlike somewhere like somaliland or afghanistan where it felt like there was a need for somebody you know there was for someone to come in and and put something on um like there are running communities in in the drc and i just don't know whether i don't know like you know when you the pieces somehow sometimes just don't fit quite Mm. fit together um and it didn't but it would be it would be an amazing race yeah it does sound incredible but i I do take your point that if it's it's also more vested interests and more individuals that you need to involve if they already have those local communities yeah and look i don't know everything about how corruption and things are in drc but i think it makes like somaliland looks like look like switzerland to be Mm -hmm. honest um it's pretty wild um it's great great atmosphere people are lovely but um i yeah i just think there's a lot of i think it'll be a tricky place to navigate yeah i bet well um in terms of it's been quite it's been a lot longer than i was expecting actually but that's a hopefully reflection of a, a good conversation but um any any little funny tidbits you can give of some of the requests you've had or some of the things that individuals have done that are clearly just way way beyond what is seen as acceptable behavior in places or wow um oh my god um let me think you know when if you've been doing something for like a dozen years Mm. I just can't think of one uh, something that's not acceptable behaviour. Um, I don't know. What's your? I mean, <laughs> or any requests, I guess, from tourists where you just think you are so clueless as to um, to how hard that would be. I don't know, but I mean, look. I mean, look. Of course, I, I've had someone say, "Can I organise them to go to like." you know 
Islamic State when it was a state. That's wow, pretty okay. crazy. Yeah. And it does disturb me that people think that I might be able to organize something like that. But I have arranged like someone's wedding on the edge of that. The, the very active volcano I was talking about in the Congo. Mm. I, I organized the guy's wedding on the edge of that. That's kind of crazy. But some things, some things are crazy, but you can do it. Yeah. And where's your <laughs> limit? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, 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 it's generally about whether it can be done and whether it can be done safely and whether it can be done in a way that is kind of not exploitative. And as long as those things are ticked, most things can be done with enough money, can't they, David? Yeah, that's true. Enough time yeah. and money, you can pretty much do anything. Yeah, 100%. So if you're listening and you've got a lot of money, people, get in <laughs> contact with James with any idea and let's test how far he's prepared to go. <laughs> well, if, if people want to get in touch, you've mentioned that it's Untamed Borders, the Instagram, um, but where else can people reach out to you and, and follow what's going on? Um, we update stuff on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. They're all at Untamed Borders. Um, and there's the website, uh, www.untamedborders.com. And I mean, you can just Google us. This, I've given some talks about stuff. I've been on some other podcasts. I've been doing some stuff. Or drop me an email. I mean, there's always more information, some other links, some other stories about places. And if people were interested in kind of getting involved in some way, what would you say is the best first bite of a trip that they could potentially do? Uh, that's a very, I mean, it very much depends where people are coming from. I know what you want, David. You want a nice little soundbite. Um, <laughs> no, <not necessarily. laughs> I don't know. I mean, look, all like, like I said, like, the, you know, we guide in places that, 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 like we we like to travel independently i like to travel everyone in untamed borders does most of our guests do and so we feel that we get we offer value by you know taking somewhere perhaps because of a security risk or a perceived security risk perhaps it's one of our expeditions so you know you're a long way from civilization you need support sometimes it's permits and things like that sometimes it's access to things so if people are looking for the the first bite it depends on whether it's they're interested in going somewhere which they think they need that sort of support they might not want to but they might want to go somewhere that we guide and they just want to, some information i mean we love trying to get people to go to places we love sharing what we do so even if they don't want to go on a trips i mean they should just reach out and and, and connect and especially on our the social media stuff we try and share stuff that's interesting you know i was talking earlier about changing a little bit the perception of of some of the places that we work in and there's plenty of people that follow us on on the social on social media that just like some of the stuff we share and wouldn't you can pay them to go to afghanistan mm-hmm. um but they just like seeing some of the um some of the things that we share some of the images some of the the video and some of the, the you know the films organizations that we that we know um just to give them a bit of a broader um view of what it's like there and and two i am aware we've been going on but two um two quick questions one which what would you say is the site you've been most blown away by on earth and the second one would be where haven't you been to for whatever reason what would be your first choice where if you could just make everywhere safe everywhere accessible where would it be oh that's very old the second well um I think that um, 
an amazing ability. Look, I really, I really do like. Uh, I mean, I took you to. We, we went to Bandiamir when we were in Afghanistan, yeah. and I must go there. I must have gone there like 30 times in my life, maybe more because I go there twice on some trips and, and it's always great. The first time you get over and you first start seeing these lakes, basically it's a series of interlocking lakes. They're sort of bright blue in the middle of this incredibly arid landscape in this huge Valley. It's a bit like a sort of mini uh, grand Canyon, but with, but filled with water and, it always blows people away. And although it doesn't always blow me away like it was the first time, I always love seeing everybody else really enjoy it and really being in Afghanistan. And I know that at some point during that day, they'll kind of forget where they are. They'll be walking mm -hmm. around the lakes and things like that. And I can see in people's eyes, they've kind of forgotten they're in the middle of Afghanistan. They've forgotten that what all of their preconceptions were and they blew me away when I first went there and just seeing how a place can affect people that uh, that's still that's still exciting after see, after being there like, you know, 30 times. That's still mm. exciting. And where I'd go, I'd love to go back to the minute. Of, oh, no, I can't do Afghanistan again, really. Um, somewhere where I would go if it was safe at the moment, I'd like to go to Sana. I'd like to go back to Sana in Yemen. And what is it about Sana? Uh, it's just great. The architecture, all of these like mud skyscrapers, uh, the old city there. And Yemen, it's like Afghanistan in the same way that it's kind of a, a sort of freewheeling place. People are really nice. Um, it's got a lot of a lot of problems, but it's just, yeah, it's just got some amazing kind of scenery. I'd love to go back there. And what was the minaret? Is it Minaret of Jam? Minaret of Jam in the centre of Afghanistan. I, I mean, I went there in 2008, but we haven't guided anywhere since 2009. Um, and I do know that if we could guide people there again uh, tomorrow, I would have like 50 people knocking at my door to go because it's like, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's spectacular. It's just this huge minaret in the middle of nowhere completely in the middle of nowhere if anyone's been to delhi and seen the kitab minar there's a big minaret there it kind of looks a lot like that and it's like yeah it's it's just sits in this valley it's incredibly hard to get to and no one really knows why it's there it's just this uh, with this sort of blue turquoise tiled um, minaret that's like 900 years old um and it's partly is the journey um you know you it's a really long bumpy ride you've got to stay in some pretty rough accommodation uh, and then yeah, and then you finally get there, and it is worth it. So, yeah, to go back to Minaret of Jam, I'd love to do that. Amazing. Well, <clears> thanks <throat> so much for coming on the podcast, James. It's been really, really interesting. And, thanks um, for eventually having me. <laughs> yeah, I just forgot. <laughs> and if you ever do that, race in the Congo, or in fact anywhere else, you know I love a first marathon. So Absolutely. Uh, do let me know. Absolutely. I, I, something new will come up a new marathon will come up and when it does i know you'll be there yeah 100 percent. cheers james all the cheers, best david bye-bye we've got the usual outro of jody and i today uh, this one was actually recorded some time ago but we thought we'd, we'd save it because um partly because it was a, a topic that we could use at any time but also the the hope was that the later we played it in the year then the more likely it is that you'll be able to book trips when you hear them um 
So it's not looking like that's going to happen, sadly, with COVID ravaging us again. But at least um, hopefully this has got you a bit more excited about what's going on in the rest of the world. And it's going to be really interesting to see actually how how things change when it comes to international travel in the future. I know that the Afghanistan Marathon is still going ahead this year, although without any international um, runners at all. So they've been doing a, a virtual race to try and raise a bit of money because in the past, races like the Afghanistan Marathon have, have been subsidized by the international um, community, by their, their entrance, entrance fees being higher. And so it's created a few issues with not having the funding they're expecting. But actually, hopefully what it will do is, is will allow it to almost be owned even, even more by the local communities and will be in, in, the, in the long term, hopefully a, a good way in which it, it, it kind of empowers the local communities to put on more races and to, to feel that they've got the ability to do that and will spread running across um, across these countries even more. So thanks for listening to that one. If you enjoyed this episode, um, other good, we've, we've done episodes where I've reported back from the Somaliland Marathon, I've reported back from the Afghanistan Marathon. Um, those would have been two, three, and maybe even four, five years ago now. Um, so have a have a look back through the archives if you really want to hear about what the experience at the time was like. Um, but other good ones to talk to, we we spoke to um, Stephanie Case, who set up Free to Run, which is this incredible organisation which empowers um, women to run in areas of conflict. She was actually there at the running of the first Afghanistan marathon, which uh, James was at, that I was at, and was engaging the, all of the her running groups or the local girls to, to run in those events. But that's just an amazing episode to see to see the challenges they face and, and what what the transformational effect can be of setting up these running clubs. Also, she's an amazing woman herself. She's done some very chunky um, ultras, including um, bucket marathons. And she's trained for those either on a roof in a UN complex in Palestine or in the yard of the American embassy in uh, Kabul. It's a really, really good episode if you haven't listened to that one. If you're not in the Facebook group, do come join us where we, we post information and, and people share the stories and funny things from around the world. If you'd like to message us about anything we've said, letters at badboyrunning.com. And we, we are receiving those now. So letters at badboyrunning.com. If you want to message me directly about future guests, david at badboyrunning.com. And if you want to ask questions to our future guests, if you follow us on Instagram, we say in advance who we're going to be interviewing and any questions you put there, we read and we put directly to the guest. So thanks for listening, guys. And we'll see you next time. But a bye 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 bye, but a bye 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 bye. Baby, come back. But a bye 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 bye, but a bye 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come back, yes, and give me one more try, cause a love like this should I never ever die. Come back, fuck you, buddy.